Well, good morning. I uh, would like to start by just reading some from an account related to a plane crash. Now, this uh, took place in 1999, and it involved the, the son of the President of the United States, former President of the United States, John F. Kennedy. This was John F. Kennedy, Jr., and he was flying a small private plane which crashed and killed him and his wife and his sister-in-law. And the reason I want to share some of this is because I think there are some real spiritual lessons to be learned from this tragedy. I know that Maurice and I have talked about this a little bit, and maybe he's actually shared some of this before. I don't remember. I know we've talked. But there are a number of things that contributed to this crash that I think have some spiritual significance to them. So let me just read a little of this account, and I think you'll be able to draw the lessons. Maybe I'll mention just a few of them. But uh, anyway, it was uh, July 16, 1999. John F. Kennedy Jr. died when his Piper Saratoga light aircraft, he was piloting, crashed into the Atlantic Ocean off the coast of Martha's Vineyard. And as I said, his wife and sister-in-law were in the crash. The National Transportation Safety Board determined the crash was caused by, quote, the pilot's failure to maintain control of the aircraft during a descent over the water at night, which was the result of spatial disorientation. Spatial disorientation. <clears throat> What's spatial disorientation? Well, it's what a pilot experiences when he's flying in weather conditions that prevent him from being able to see the horizon or the ground. It was really hazy that night. Prevents him from seeing the horizon or the ground. Points of reference that guide his senses disappear. His perceptions become unreliable. You're going by sight, you see, and your feelings and they become unreliable. He can no longer be sure which way is up and which way is down, and it can be deadly. The only way a pilot can overcome spatial disorientation is to trust his cockpit instruments more than his senses. You've got to go by the instruments. That's why the flight instructors force student pilots to learn to fly airplanes by instruments alone. Now, I just want to read a few things that contributed to this situation. As I said, there were hazy conditions that, the night of the crash, and especially at night, haze can lead to spatial disorientation. Another thing was that he was not an extremely experienced pilot. <clears throat> he received his license on April 1998, so it had been about a year. Uh, he did not possess an instrument rating. There was also some things related to 
just stress in his life at the time that they say could have been a contributing factor. His marriage was not doing well. He, he was in financial problems. And according to the Aeronautic Information Manual, stress from everyday living can impair the pilot's performance, often in subtle ways. Distractions, distractions can so interfere with judgment that unwarranted risks are taken, taken, such as flying, into deteriorating weather conditions, which is what he did. There's also the factor of pilot distraction. Kennedy's plane flew into the path of a American Airlines Flight 1484, which was on the approach to uh, the Westershire County Airport. Controllers instructed the American Airlines jet to descend to avoid the collision. The two aircraft came uncomfortably close, so he had that stress also. No flight plan. Kennedy never received a weather briefing or filed a flight plan. Except for the takeoff portion of his flight, Kennedy did not contact air traffic controllers during the flight. He never requested help nor declared an emergency. He also <coughs> got started later than what he had planned. The flight was originally scheduled for daylight hours, but had been postponed after Kennedy's sister-in-law was delayed at work. It pushed the flight back from originally leaving at 6 p.m. to 8, 8 39, nearly half an hour after sunset. So he wasn't planning originally to fly at night, but he did. He also made a bad choice after passing Point Judith, Rhode Island. Kennedy's plane headed directly towards Martha's Vineyard. Instead of following the coastline of the Rhode Island Sound, which would have provided visible lights on the ground, Kennedy chose the shorter direct path over 30 mile open stretch of water. According to the FAA airplane flying handbook, crossing large bodies of water at night may be hazardous, not just from the standpoint of having to ditch in the water, but also because of the featureless horizon visibly blends with the water, in which case depth perception and orientation become di difficult. So he chose a shorter route but it was not a safer <coughs> And last but not least, when the National Transportation Safety Board examined the wreckage, they discovered that both of Kennedy's radios had incorrect fre frequencies selected. He wasn't even on the right frequency to receive radio transmissions. Many things there that we can apply spiritually, especially when we're flying into difficult conditions. The main thing I want to bring out is that you have to go by the instruments. Mm -hmm. And for a Christian, that instrument is the Word of God, <clears throat> what God has told us. You don't go by your feelings. What I'm going to share actually has to do with a, another voyage that uh, ran into some difficulties. Let's turn to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8 
and verse 22. Now it came about on one of those days that he and his disciples got into a boat, and he said to them, Let us go over to the other side of the lake. This would be the Sea of Galilee. And they launched out. And as they were sailing along, he fell asleep. Now that sounds pretty calm, doesn't it? As they were sailing along. Sometimes that's what we feel like we're doing too. We're just sailing along. Well, as they were sailing along, he fell asleep. And a fierce gale of wind descended upon the lake. And they began to be swamped and to be in danger. And they came to him and woke him up saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And being aroused, he rebuked the wind and the surging waves, and they stopped, and it became calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were fearful and amazed, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him? And then I'd like to read the parallel account in Mark. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. Actually, before we read uh, 35, let's just start at the beginning of the chapter because it gives us the setting here. Mark 4, 1. And he began to teach again by the sea, and such a great multitude gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down, And the whole multitude was by the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. So then you have all the rest of this chapter down to 35, verse 35, things that Jesus taught either to those uh, that were listening there on land or to his own disciples. So it was a full day of teaching and bringing the word of God to people. But then we get to verse 35. And on that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go over to the other side. And leaving the multitude, they took him along with them, just as he was in the boat, and other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already being filled, already filled up. And he himself was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they awoke him and said to him, A teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And being aroused, he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you so timid? How is it that you have no faith? And they became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And then I think it's good just to read the next verse. And they came to the other side of the sea. They got where Jesus said they were going. I just want to share some thoughts, some lessons we might gain from this account of a voyage. Some spiritual lessons. Actually, I know that Garrett spoke on this a few years ago, and uh, there were a lot of good things that he shared. 
hopefully there'll be some good things here too and maybe not all uh, totally the same as what Garrett shared. So you have a situation here where Jesus has been speaking to the multitudes from a boat almost all day long. And that evening, he, he leaves with his disciples in a boat. Now, I think it's good to remember that at least four of his disciples were experienced fishermen. They knew what they were doing in a boat. So that's the setting. And that's the situation. But what can we gain from this in terms of just some insight into spiritual life? Well, I would say, first of all, and this is kind of a minor lesson, but I think it's worth bringing out. We see that uh, Jesus is our pattern for living, even in the common things of life, like the virtue of hard work. He, he, he spent all day doing what God had called him to do, which is to preach the gospel and present truth to people. He worked hard at what God called him to do. And consequently, when night came, he fell asleep. He'd worked hard, and uh, he fell asleep. Solomon says that the sleep of the laborer, the laboring man, is sweet. He's able to lay down on the pillow. He's done what he's supposed to. He's tired. He went to sleep. Christ could sleep in the storm because he'd worked hard doing God's will during the day. Now, that's a simple lesson, but it's just a practical one in terms of what God would have us, how God would have us to live. Next thing we see in these accounts is the true manhood of, of, of Christ. He slept, you know. He needed to sleep. He was tired. He went to sleep. I just like, you know, there's these little added details that the Bible puts in there that you read over and you don't think about. But it says he was asleep on a cushion. You know, he didn't just curl up on the hard boards of the boat. He slept on a cushion. Why is that? Because if you sleep on the hard boards of a boat, it hurts. It's not as easy to sleep. Because he had a real body. And it's easier to sleep on a cushion than it is on hard boards. We're talking about the fact that Christ was a true man. He had a body like ours. He felt pain. He was thirsty at times, hungry. He got tired. Now that, you know... That's important. That should be important to us because as the writer of Hebrews brings out, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows what it's like to be tired and thirsty. He knows what it's like to try to sleep on bare boards. So we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy. You see, he's a merciful and faithful high priest. He knows what it's like to be in our situation. Might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He knows our frame. He can sympathize with our weaknesses. 
and just the fact of living here in this body because he's been there. Another thing I would say we can glean from this is that Christ's service does not exempt his servants from storms. The service of Christ does not exempt us from the storms of life. These disciples launched out in obedience. They were doing what what Christ told them to do. Get in the boat, go to the other side of the lake. Now they are in a, uh, a difficult situation because of obedience. A <clears throat> uh, sudden storm comes up. We weren't expecting this at all. and The whole boat seemed like it was going to be swamped tossing this little boat to and fro. So the point here is that obedience brings no immunity from trouble. (coughs) Peter Peter says this in 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. Don't be surprised when some storms come, when some difficulties come. Uh, it might be sickness. It might be financial difficulties. It might be disappointments, of something you expected that didn't come to pass, losses, afflictions. Don't be surprised at those things. I thought I'd read a little bit of a, a poem here that I, I like a lot by a woman named Annie Johnson Flint, and it's good to know just a little about her because she knew some of the storms of life. She was orphaned at a very early age, took in by some of her relatives. They also died, leaving her pretty much penniless and alone. And then she became very sick and very... um, incapacitated with arthritis so much that she was uh, in a wheelchair quite a bit of her life. But in the midst of all that, she could write this poem, and I think that uh, it fits in well with what we're talking about here. The, The poem is called, What God Has Promised. God hath not promised skies always blue, flower strewn pathways all our lives through, God hath not promised sun without rain, joy without sorrow, peace without pain. God hath not promised we shall not know toil and temptation, trouble and woe. He hath not told us we shall not bear many a burden, many a care. God hath not promised smooth roads and wide, swift, easy travel, needing no guide, never a mountain rocky and steep, never a river torbid and deep. But... God hath promised strength for the day, rest for the labor, light for the way, grace for the trials, help from above, unfailing sympathy, undying love. So, obedience to Christ does not exempt us from the storms of life. Actually, in the storms, we learn things that we wouldn't learn other places. J.C. Ryle says this, 
By affliction, he shows us our emptiness and weakness, draws us to the throne of grace, purifies our affections, weans us from the world, makes us long for heaven. In the resurrection morning, we shall all say, it was good for me that I was afflicted. We'll see that there was a purpose in the storm. But storms do come. The next thing I would bring out is the necessity of walking by faith, not by sight. That's something that I think we should glean from this account. The necessity of walking by faith, not by sight. Often we must trust God when all around us, all around us seems to be going in the wrong direction. We must believe that the only storms that touch us are those that he's, he's allowing to touch us. Even when God seems not to be aware of our trouble, we must believe that he loves us and will take care of us. I mean, here, Jesus was asleep in the boat, and the boat was being... This is almost hard to, to comprehend. The boat was starting to fill up with water, and he's asleep on the cushion. Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? We have to believe, we have to walk by faith, not by sight, that God really does care for us in those times when it looks like the boat's filling up. He really does have our best interest in mind. Faith, part of faith is trusting God when the pieces don't seem to fit together in our life. Back to the former illustration that I gave there from the plane crash. These are the times when you have to go by the instruments, not go by your feelings. Now, if we put ourselves in the disciples' place for a moment, again, we've launched out in obedience. Now we're in a major storm, it looks like. And again, these were, these were experienced fishermen, so they generally would know how to handle situations on the, on the water. And I'm sure they did what they could. But at a certain point, it seems that fear took over. You can tell there's a little panic in the voice, the way they, Master, Master. Well, Lloyd-Jones says faith is refusal to panic. But they, Jesus says, you know, where was your faith? They panicked. Matthew t- says it this way. They awoke him saying, save, save us, Lord, we're perishing. Mark says they awoke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? So there was a... Uh, genuine fear there, a also uh, just the doubting of, of God's care and concern for them. It's easy to look at the disciples, you know, and read this account and kind of think, well, too bad they did that. But the fact is, that's probably what you and I would have done too. And we do do that. Well, some storm comes along, some... Difficulty, and we forget what we've heard, 
forget what God's done in the past. Just look at that present situation and allow fear to come in. Well, anyway, this account shows us the necessity of walking by faith and not by sight. Another thing we see here is that even a weak faith can receive help from a strong Christ. I think, I think that was Hudson Taylor that said something like that. <clears throat> even a weak faith can receive help from a strong Christ. The disciples had let fear rule their, over their faith, thinking Christ was unconcerned and unaware of their situation. Of course, he was not. He was very concerned. Uh, and he's concerned for us all the time. He knows our frailties and our weaknesses. He's patient with his people, bearing with many of our doubts and fears. We're told that he does not deal with us according to our iniquities, but he's long-suffering with our defects of faith and our lack of love and courage and all these other areas that we fail in. So, what we see in this account is that true saving faith may be mingled with much weakness and failing. You know that. But, here's the good thing. An honest, heartfelt cry for help will be answered. You know, in the midst of their vacillations and fears, at least they did the right thing eventually. They didn't just cry, which is what we do sometimes. They cried for help to God. They cried to Christ, which is what we need to do in those situations. They cried for help, and God answered, even in the midst of their fears and failings. After rebuking the wind, he does give them a gentle rebuke also showing that their real problem was not the storm, but their lack of faith, which is always the case for a Christian. The real problem is not the storm. It's our lack of trust in God. They had witnessed God, Christ, doing many uh, amazing things, miracles, and, and uh, yet they forgot that in the midst of the trial. Past lessons... They forgot the past lessons in the present situation. But again, we're like that often. It just seems like the minute some new thing comes along, we forget all the things that God's brought us through in the past. But we need to be reminded of those things. We need to bring those things to remembrance. Jesus said to them, Why are you so timid or fearful? How is it that you have no faith? But I say, again, these are, these are God, this shows Christ's compassion for them, Christ's concern for them, his tenderness and patience with them. I like the way J.C. Ryle puts this. Let me just read a little of this. Uh, this is out of a, uh, a sermon he gave called The Ruler of the Waves. But he says this, Let all the world know that the Lord Christ is full of pity 
and of tender mercy. He will not break the bruised reed nor quench the smoking flax. As a father pitieth his children, so he pitieth them that fear him. Only let a sinner lay hold on Christ by faith, and then, however feeble, Christ's word is pledged to him, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. He may correct him occasionally in love, he may gently reprove him at times, but he will never, never give up on him. Let all the world know that the Lord Jesus will not cast away his believing people because of shortcomings and infirmities. The Lord Christ does not cast off poor sinners who have committed their souls into his hands because he sees in them blemishes, blemishes and imperfections. Oh, no. It is his glory to pass over the faults of his people and heal the black backslidings, to make much of their weak grace and to pardon their many faults. So, this is what we see in this account. And, you know, we need to be like that with one another, too. We, we all are, have times in our lives where we're faltering, where we're, we're not on such an even keel and just able to sail through things. We have some storms. And in some of those times, I think that... Uh, we might sense one another having a little trouble in trusting God. But, you know, what should we do in those situations? We don't come down on the person. We want to help them go from fear to faith. And you do that by pointing them to Christ and the tender mercies of Christ in those situations. God's not going to come down on you. And our brothers and sisters shouldn't either. Well, another thing then. Not only is Jesus a true man, that we brought that out earlier, that comes out clearly in this account. He's truly God. This is what the disciples began to realize here when he rebuked the wind and the waves. I mean, that, that really got to them. Who is this man who speaks to the winds and the waves and they obey him? Often God delays to answer that we might receive a fuller revelation of his greatness, goodness, and glory. That's what Christ was doing here. Letting some of this happen so that they could see more of who he was. And that's what happens in our lives. He lets some things happen in our lives so that we can see more of who he is. His greatness and goodness and glory. The storms arose, and then Jesus arose, and then the disciples realized who they had in the boat with them. That's that's what we got to realize: who's in the boat with us. <clears throat> Jesus, as a man, was asleep in the boat. Jesus, as God, rebuked the winds and the waves. Just took three words: "Hush, be still," and it was all over. Here you have the Creator speaking to the creation. The disciples marveled, and in the midst of the peril that they were in, realized they'd forgotten who was in the boat with them. I mean, the, here's, here's disciples 
people who knew the Old Testament, knew all the Psalms. They would have known these things. And it's just, again, like us. We know these things. Listen to these Psalms. O Lord God of hosts, who is like thee, O mighty Lord, thy faithfulness also surrounds thee. Thou dost rule the swelling seas. When its waves rise, thou dost still them. That's Psalm 89, Psalm 93. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods have lifted up their pounding waves. More than the sound of the many waves, more than the mighty breakers of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. They knew all that, but in the midst of the storm, they've forgotten it. But here they were with Christ in the boat. And they did, again, do the right thing. They called, cried out to him. They realized that in the, in the boat with them, one who had their own <coughs> flesh and blood like they were, was one who, with his word, commands the winds and the waves. So then they were fearful. It says they were fearful, realizing who was in the boat with them. Now, that's the right kind of fear. The wrong kind of fear is to be fearful of the situation. The right kind of fear is to have a reverence and awe for who Christ is and the fact that this one is actually in the boat with you. That was, that was a reverential fear. And really, I think that that kind of reverential fear is really one of the keys to faithfulness in difficult situations. If we would just live in this awareness that the one in the boat with us is the one who can control the wind and the waves, our fears of all else would be replaced by the proper fear of who he is and by a proper faith in him. Hudson Taylor, again, let me just mention this quote. All God's giants, by that he means people of great faith, all God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on God being with them. It's not, you see, it's not that they were great people in themselves. They had a great God. Another thing I think we can see here, and I've already brought this out, is if, if we do launch out in faith, in obedience to what God has told us. He's with us. Jesus is in the boat with us. He'll never leave us or forsake us. When we pass through the waters, He'll be with us. He'll be with us. When we go through the rivers, they'll not overflow us. This is a quote out of Isaiah 43. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Now, here's, here's a point that I think that we need to bring to mind constantly, and that is our identification, Christ's identification with us and who we are in him. And um, as his people, we are so identified with him, with Christ, that the only way for us to perish is for him to perish. That's just the way it is. We're so wrapped up with the person of Christ because of how God has arranged salvation. We're so tied in with Christ 
that there's no way we can perish unless Christ perishes. Now, William Tyndale put it this way, and I, I like this quote. He says, Christ is thine, and all his deeds are thy deeds. Christ is in thee, and thou in him, knit together inseparably. Neither canst thou be damned except Christ be damned. Neither can Christ be saved except thou be saved with him. The believer is one with Christ in his righteousness and in his redemption. I think that's an amazing quote. Our identification with Christ and his identification with us. Who can separate us from the love of God, love of Christ? Should tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Well, Jesus said to these disciples, let us go to the other side of the lake. That's the way this account begins. And that's what happens. They get over to the other side of the lake. Now, there are some problems in between. But that, this is that's the whole Christian life summed up right there. A sovereign protector I have, unseen yet forever at hand, unchangeably faithful to save, almighty to rule and command. Our problems may be big. There may be some big storms. But you see, the one in the boat with us is infinite. Now, that puts things in the right perspective. Our problems are big, but God is infinite. So the question is, how much bigger is infinite than big? (laughs) Well, I'll close there. Um, We will go through stormy times, and there will probably be some vacillation on our part and fear on our part. But what matters is if we've launched out in obedience. Have we truly done that? If we're headed in the right direction, Christ's in the boat with us. And we will make it through the storms of life and land safe on the other side. They came to the other side of the sea. I like that. They came to the other side of the sea.